thank you, Jesus. We bless your name. Father God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Counselor, Jehovah God, Jireh, Nisi, Lord Jesus, we worship you. All these names speak of your character, speak of who you are. Speak of your presence, Lord Jesus. And Father, we sense you in this place today. We sense your goodness, we sense your grace, we sense your mercy. We sense the compelling power of the Holy Spirit. You're here. You were here before we woke up this morning. You were in our homes, superintending our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Emmanuel, for being with us. The transcendent God, Lord, who is imminently right here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Your holy God. Father, I pray that right now that you will prepare our hearts, Lord Jesus, to continue to worship you with how we receive your word and how we apply it to our hearts. Father, I pray that we be open to allow the word to transform us today, Lord Jesus. We should never hear the reading of your word. We should never read the word, never hear it preached, Lord, or express where the power of the Holy Spirit shouldn't change us in some ways. So, Father, open our hearts to receive, Lord, as we worship with how we receive your word this morning. You're a good God. Lord Jesus, we celebrate all that you've done in our life this past week, Lord. This is, this is the overflow of all your blessings this past week. This is what we're doing here for you this morning is celebrating who you are and what you've done in this kingdom. We're just gracious, Lord. We're just thankful to be a part of it. So Holy Father, we exalt you in this place today. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are. It feels like the, one of the longest roads in my life to get here. <laughs> and I've driven to Newfoundland multiple times. There's stretches of that highway that feel very, very, very long. <laughs> but uh, I'm so, so incredibly excited to be here. You have no idea. Um, a few weeks back, we drove by before I had keys. Couldn't get into building at the time, uh, and I just brought my kids, and I remember my wife and I just sitting in the car, and uh, just watching as they looked in the windows, and they said, "What's this room? What's this room?" And I said, "And I said that's my office right there." And all these like, "Oh, come over, Brooklyn! This is Dad's office and stuff." And and uh, I just kind of felt their excitement, and I've been so grateful to God that He's made this transition easier on them. Uh, I grew up a PK pastor's kid, and uh, that's why people call me troublemaker, right? You PKs. PKs are the troublemakers. You see my kids running around here? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to lie. When we were at youth camp, the PKs were the ones always getting in trouble. Let's just be straight. We're not, we're not little angels, I don't think, but maybe I've grown out of some of that. But It's tough, you know. I, I've done a few transitions myself growing up. My mom and dad have been pastors for 40 years, faithful. <laughs> And uh, whew. 
Oh, moments like this, I just think of how important they are in my life. And I'm going to tell you one thing about my dad, and I, I hope I inherit this trait, and I hope I have inherited this trait, and I've worked very hard to inherit it, but my dad and my mom, until the day they retired, went at it full steam ahead. There was no coast in my parents. There still is no coast in my parents. They don't know how to coast in the kingdom of God. They still want to work in the kingdom of God. They still want to push ahead. They still believe they have things that God wants them to do, and I just I admire them so greatly. And uh, there's no, I, I just want you to know, there's no coast in me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that there's time to coast in the kingdom of God. Amen? There's things to do. There's, a, there's people to reach. There's a kingdom to be one for him. Amen? So um, before we get started um, into the word this morning, I just, I just want to take a moment and honor um, uh, Pastor Werner myself. I did not know the man, and, and I, I, I have to tell you that I just, Connie did such an amazing job with her tribute, and uh, I just, I've read up as much as I could find, I've listened to sermons, and I've made an, an attempt to get to know this man as best I could, because I know how important he was to the life of this church, and I prayed about this day. In fact, when I first got the invitation to come to preach the call, I, I, I remember speaking to God and having a, just, just a regular conversation with God and saying, God, I said, if all these things work and the timing goes, I said, I'm going to start on June the 11th. That's the day after the anniversary of his passing. I'm going to need your wisdom. I'm going to need your grace. And uh, every time I prayed, one word came to my mind. It's home. And I said, God, explain to me what you mean. Home. Home. And uh, I just, you know, we have this amazing hope. If you're wondering what we have to offer the world, start with the word hope. When we look around, there's a lot of things that can make you feel hopeless. But today, one thing I am certain of is that Pastor Werner is in the presence of the ever-living God. He's home. And in a way, you know, that should make us all feel just a little bit jealous. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but I mean, I cannot wait I mean, I love my life. I love living on this amazing planet that he's given us. I love the kingdom of God. I, I, I love the church. But there's part of me that, you know, there's something in me. You know, when, we re, when I preached the call, you know, I talked about that eternity. There's something in us calling us home. And this is the word that kept coming back to my mind is home. And today, you know, a year later, I'm, I'm certain he's quite content to be home. So, you know what? We have a hope. We have a blessed hope. Blessed are those who know Jesus Christ and pass away. Um, so I just, just want to publicly honor him. And um, I'm sure I'll learn more about him as we go by. I mean, there's a little piece of him in, in many of you, I'm sure. And so and I'm excited about that. Um, I, however, am just myself. And I'm, I'm content in who God has created me to be. And uh, I, I'm not going to try to be him. And I, I think that you guys would all be happy to know that I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I just, I do want to publicly honor him and, and acknowledge all the amazing things he's done for the kingdom here at Wardenful Gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's just get into the word of God this morning. going to be looking at a few passages, but eventually here this morning we're going to be getting into uh, John 
chapter 4. And uh, I just, over the next few weeks, uh, prayed about how to start. And I just, I just kind of want to share my heart with you a little bit. I want to share you with some of these things um, that are from my own philosophy of ministry. And, uh, <laughs> excuse me. As a pastor, I have taken the time to write down my philosophy of ministry, and it's, it's still a moving target. I, I find out adding things, expanding things as God shares in my heart, and I realize that I am passionate about these things. So these are the things uh, that I'm going to be preaching over the next few weeks that I'm passionate about. These are the things that I wake up in the morning thinking about. These are the things that kind of get my motor uh, running when I think about the kingdom of God. So today my sermon is entitled Church and Society. And I just want to look into that a little bit. may take a couple weeks on this topic. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Still feeling things out. Uh, But uh, today we're going to dive in here. Uh, Have you ever noticed how at times we misuse the word sinner? I think this word is probably a word that gets misused used in society uh, quite a bit. And we misuse it. And last week we attended a church where a close friend of mine uh, is a pastor and uh, he was on a stage, and he was part of the worship team, and he didn't know, we, we kind of surprised me, he didn't know, know I was there, and we were there, so I took a picture of him, and I texted him, and I knew that as soon as he got off the platform, you know, you'd probably check it. And he did, and he's like, you're here? And I, and, uh, I, was, I said, yeah, I'm sitting in the back with the sinners. <laughs> and just trying to make him laugh, and hopefully he laughed like you guys just laughed. But I'm not, too, I'm not too young to remember, you know, I don't know if it was like this in Ontario, but in Newfoundland, when you read the bulletin of a church, uh, we had a morning service and evening service. The morning was the, the, the morning worship service, and the evening service was the evening evangelistic service. Did you do that up here? I'm not sure, and that's, and that's how it was labeled. And uh, I'm, I'm okay if every service is evangelistic, Amen. And I'm okay if every service is a worship service. They should be a part of it all. But I remember these times, and... Um, Although it wasn't necessarily really verbalized, it felt like the back rows were thought to be where the sinners sat, especially on Sunday night. Am I right? Is it just me? All you churchgoers, you guys grew up in a church? And although it, was, you know, it wasn't really verbalized that way, there wasn't no set rule, it kind of felt like an unspoken understanding. Nowadays, the idea of Christians referring to people as sinners has become a little bit cringy, I'm not going to lie. Because the reality is, Christians have on times used this term to marginalize or objectify those who are not Christians. And uh, got a little quieter there. Did you notice that? <laughs> we get ourselves caught in trouble sometimes. You know, we use these words to uh, marginalize or objectify people who are not Christians. One thing you will notice about me is that I believe in accountability, and we as a church, need to be accountable to God for our actions. Amen? We can't pretend like Christians don't make mistakes. I will lead the charge on that. My mistakes will be more public than the rest of yours. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had to learn, James makes it very clear, that, you know, you shouldn't be a teacher unless you're willing to be judged a little or paid attention to a little bit more closely. And I, and I, I take that accountability with God very, very seriously. I believe we should be accountable as Christians. We can't pretend like Christians don't make mistakes and that there have been, haven't been some pretty terrible things done throughout history in the name of Jesus. We miss the mark at times and we need to own it. 
If anything, it displays our continual deep need of Jesus. We need Jesus in our lives. The society needs Jesus. This is a contributing factor to why people have problems with the concept of church or the church. To be honest, most people understand church as a building or going to church as sitting in a room and listening to some guy ramble on at the front. If that's you here this morning, I'm that guy. Just a heads up. (laughs) Most of society doesn't understand the church as Christ's beloved. If you told them the church was the bride of Christ, they would look at you like, what, come again? The bride of what? (laughs) You know, because it sounds like an old movie, Bride of Frankenstein, Bride of Christ, what? I mean, I'm not trying to be irreverent this morning. This is just the reality is that people, when we use these Christian terms, they don't understand a lot of times what we're talking about. I mean, just look at the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus when he talked about being born of the Spirit. Not only of water and, and of the earth, you know, you got to be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is like, come again? What? It was foreign to him. He didn't understand it. Jesus had to explain it to him. So we're going to look at the church. And I have a very, very, very simple definition that I'm going to kind of stick to this morning. The church is the body of Christ, which includes all the people who accept Christ's gift of salvation. And follow Christ's teachings. The church is the body of Christ, which includes all the people who accept Christ's gift of salvation and follow Christ's teaching. Now, I understand it's much more multi-layer than that, but that is the heart of who the church is. We are a body. We are a body. Our fingers do what our brains tell it to do. Our mouth says what our brains tell it to say. Our mouths also eat what our brains tell it to Something we're not so quick to be accountable about. And sometimes our stomachs will file a protest with the brain about the things that we eat. Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. The protest goes from the stomach to the brain or to the head. And contrary to what we believe, we do not have to say no. We do not have to say yes, pardon me, to the last seven or eight pieces of bacon. And you're like, seven or eight pieces? I like bacon, okay? I will arm wrestle you for the last piece of bacon. No, I'm just kidding. Or that bag of Doritos just before you go to bed, you know? That never, that never works out well, right? Those lousy, zesty cheese Doritos get me every time. We understand on a functional level how the body works. We understand that these fingers twinkle when I do this, you know? We understand that I open and close my eyes when my brain tells it. We understand that the body functions because the brain tells it what to do. We understand how the body works. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 says it much better than I did. Uh, Verses 12 to 14 say, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And thank God it is. Because even if you just think of all the different parts that make this service happen, you know, I'm, we're so blessed with the volunteers in this church. I'm just getting to know you all, but the people who are in that sound booth, the people who are worshiping up here, the people who are planning for our, our social time out there in the Coffee Connect, I think it's called. Still learning things. 
Still trying to remember all the names, <laughs> all, all the different things. You know, there's a lot of moving parts that go and volunteer. There's a lot of moving parts of the body. And they don't start being parts of the body when we leave the church. Amen? And the point I want us to grab onto here this morning is that church is meant to be a unity. It's meant to be a unit, a family, harmonious, unified under one vision, under one head, which is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 will give any Jehovah's Witness a big headache. And it's one of my favorite passages of all time. These are some of my life verses because it talks about who Jesus Christ is and the supremacy of God. Just listen to these incredible words. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Every line really is a sermon unto itself, but The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen? Pick it up at verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body The church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now it's talking about what he has promised for us, amen? So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God bless the reading of his word. The church is much more than a building. Uh, In the Bible, church rarely refers to a building. In fact, it more frequently refers to people, people who follow Jesus Christ. It frustrates me that the church could ever be seen as an entity that does not embody the character of its head, Jesus Christ. It it, it bothers me that, you know, that when people, you talk about the church and society, that, that they don't always have a positive reaction to it, which... That comes back on us, doesn't it, a little bit? If we poll the average person in society today and ask them how they felt about the church, I fear we would hear more negativity than we would like or expect. I saw a social media post from a friend of mine. It's not a believer in... um, I doubt that I was on her mind when she posted it, but, but it was a post that basically said there's no, love, there's no hate like the love of religion. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I wasn't mad at her for posting it. I was grieved that it, she felt it was necessary. I am not saying that the church is broken or that it hasn't done anything good. I'm far from saying that. Through history, there were many times where lesser entities would have died off. And dare I say, there were seasons where it appeared in history that the church had all but disappeared. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a famous British uh, literary giant in a lot of ways, uh, spoke his mind, said what he wanted to. And in reading his, his works... Uh, I just read a book called The Everlasting Man, and he makes a quite a drastic statement in here, but a powerful one if we'll listen to it. It says that Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. And now what he meant by that is that it wasn't visible in society anymore. 
Christianity has died many times and risen again, but listen to this, for it had a God that knew the way out of the grave. The bride of Christ is alive and well today, amen? Despite many attempts throughout history to have her wiped out, but we cannot stick our head in the sand and pretend that the church is not full of imperfect people, sinners if you will, who have experienced incredible grace and mercy. We would not be standing in here if it wasn't for the grace and mercy. We need to understand right away that there's nothing we could have done to earn this salvation. There's nothing we could have done. One of the biggest problems in society and where we lose connect with society is that society says that i got to do everything I can to be good. And there's no way that if you think that your goodness, that you doing everything in good, to be good is, there's no way that you can think about that and not at some point feel at least a little bit self-righteous. You know, if you say that the whole responsibility for me to be good is on my head, on my head, it's, it's almost impossible not to feel at some point a little bit self-righteous so that you look at somebody else who's not doing as good a job as you and you say, well, maybe they may need to pull up their socks a little bit. But you see, when Jesus taught on the cross, he changed that. He took the responsibility off you. He leveled the playing field so that when I came to Jesus some 30 plus years, I actually don't remember not serving Jesus, and I'm grateful for it. But I am no more a believer then if you're here this morning here in the name of Jesus for the first time and you say, Lord, come into my heart this morning, I am no more of a believer than you are. You can do that right now, by the way. You don't have to wait till I'm done preaching. Can't stick her head in the sand and pretend that the church is not full of imperfect people. What we must not lose sight of in this, in this society is that society, whether it realizes it or not, oh, does it need the church? The church has God intended the church to be. The church that understands who the head is. The church that that wants to empower and release to the gifts of the Spirit, to the power of the Spirit, wants to power and release the body to do His work. Oh, the church is needed in society. And I can publicly say that I love the church. You want to know something about me, man? I love you. I love the church. I love it as he has intended it. I have adopted in my life this deep love, and I feel Jesus' love for the church, for his bride. And I've absorbed that. I've adopted it, and I believe it with all my heart that this church is the hope of the world. I know Bill Hybels is going through some troubling times right now, but he wrote in his book, Courageous Leadership, he wrote this phrase that the church is the hope of the world. And when I read that some years ago, I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's the truth. Society, whether it realizes it or not, needs a church. Scripturally, it breaks down quite simply like this. Relationship with God is where we start. Relationship with each other within the church Boy, do we need to protect those relationships, amen? The love of Jesus between us. We need to protect the relationships between us, amen? Guard them. And you know, if you're having a troubling relationship within the church, you need to understand that if you go to Jesus like a lamb, lamb, he will defend you like a lion. 
Amen? And that goes for anywhere you are. If you go to your brother like a lamb, then they will sense the presence of the lion. Do you understand what I'm saying? A relationship with God is most important. A relationship with us, we're interconnected. We give the example to the world of how to live for Jesus Christ. We need to know who we are. We need to love each other. You need to love. And if you can't pray for the person next to you, that's where I want you to start this morning. If you're looking across this room and you're wondering if you should take communion on a Sunday because you have something going on in your heart on forgiveness, boy, it's time to deal with it. It's always a good time to deal with those things. Relationship with God. Relationship with the church. And lastly is our relationship with society. For our purposes today, we are assuming our individual personal personal relationships with God are on point. Amen? Hopefully yours is. We are assuming that we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are assuming harmony of vision and efforts. Praise God. The question we will focus on for the remainder of our time today is, how can we really reach into society and show the world the true bride of Christ? How can we really show society the true worth of the family of God? In John chapter 4, we have an example of an actual personal encounter Jesus initiated with society. And I know I I concluded my last sermon here talking about the Samaritan woman, but I just haven't been able to get her off my mind. I haven't been able to get this account off my mind, so here we are again this morning. So hopefully you'll dig in here with me for a little longer. Is that okay? But we have this actual personal encounter Jesus initiated with society. Uh, Recorded here is one of 13 actual conversations that Jesus has with other people. And and I love reading these actual interactions where Jesus is talking, people respond. uh, And it's pretty amazing, actually. But this is a convo with uh, a woman that society would have dictated Jesus had no business having a conversation with. Already Christ is setting for the church an audacious example of how we are to interact with society. We think sometimes we can decide, well, I don't know how comfortable I feel talking to this. I don't know if I want to, they believe this. I don't know if they won't listen to me. Well, man, if Jesus Christ is speaking to you to go up and talk to them, then go up and talk to them. I know, I know that's easier said than done, but, but the big question you got to ask is, did God speak to me? Did, did, is he compelling me? You know, like, I think it's Philip, an Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he just walked up, he just listened and walked up, and he heard them reading from the book of Isaiah, and, and he took that opportunity, and the next thing you know, someone's getting baptized. Hallelujah. Right? Already Christ, again, is setting an audacious example of how to interact with society. So if we look at the context here in John 4, verses 1 to 26, here the Pharisees were on the prowl again. And so Jesus and his disciples leave Judea, the, the city center, and they head to Galilee. And on the way, they had to pass through what was known as Samaria. That's the first four verses here. So let's just pick it up at verse 5. It says, So he came to a town. We're in John chapter 4, verse 5 to 8. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Jacob. Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, uh, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. 
It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Uh, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So how can we really reach into society and show the world the true bride of Christ? How can we really show society the true worth of the family of God? First of all, we have to actually address society. This may seem a little too on the nose here this morning, but just pace with me. It says, a Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? We need to acknowledge the social barriers that Jesus crossed just to speak to this woman. Tim Keller notes in his book, Encounters with Jesus, that centuries before most of the Jews were ex- uh, exiled to Babylon by the conquerors, you know, back in 586, BC, some of the Jews who stayed behind and are married with Canaanites and essentially formed a new tribe, the Samaritans. And they took parts of the Jewish religion and parts of the Canaanites' religion and created a synchronistic religion. So the Jews considered the Samaritans racially inferior and heretics. It's kind of a harsh way to put it, but that's really what we were dealing with. There was a wall between these two societies, these two peoples. There was major barriers between Jesus, a Jewish man, and this Samaritan woman. Keller goes on to ask the question, why was she even at the well in the middle of the day? Because this wasn't the normal um, way of doing things. And it's a very valid question. The Samaritan woman, uh, would have come, Samaritan woman would have come to draw water from the well in the early morning when it was still cool. But she came at noon because she was a social outcast, even among her own people. This is what makes this encounter so incredible. uh, Keller highlights how how radical this interaction was. He says, when Jesus begins to speak to her, he is deliberately reaching across almost every significant barrier people put up between themselves. A racial barrier, a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, and a moral barrier. And every convention of the time that he, a religious Jewish male, should have nothing whatsoever to do with. We have a lot of these barriers active. I mean, right here in Scarborough, we need to realize that 66% of the people in this city are immigrated. Over 80% are, are people of color. I, I read somewhere recently that not even that that I think there's over 30% of people. The first language in Scarborough is not English. I, it's I believe it's a Chinese dialect. I can't remember which, which one per se, but over, it's over 30% of the people, I believe, speak a Chinese dialect as their first language. Man, if that doesn't shake your system a little bit and realize that we got cultural barriers, right? We have social barriers. We have things that we allow to be barriers that we got to find a way to break down, amen? Because the kingdom of God is multi-ethnic. It's multicultural. I'm going to talk a little bit about that next week, I hope. You get into Acts, and you, get, you can't read Acts without realizing that the church dispersed because they wanted to keep it in Jerusalem within the Jews, but, but that's not God's plan. That was never God's plan. The church is multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational. The church is open for the whosoever will may come. The conversation reminds us that we cannot sit back as a church and not be willing to address society across man-made barriers. 
man-made barriers. Not barriers God created. I am not talking about a political level. Let's just focus on the fact that Jesus left Judea to get away from the political level, to get away from the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He had enough of them for the time. He got away from the political arguments. He chose to address this woman who clearly needed direction, who was lost, who for all intents and purposes was out of bounds to him, according to society. This, this profound encounter with society began with, will you give me a drink? Simple little question. We, the church, cannot be afraid to actually address society and simply start a conversation. Sometimes I feel like the church gets so bent out of shape by the issues of society that we choose avoidance. But Jesus never chose avoidance. He never chose avoidance. He never walked away from a social concern, a social issue. He addressed it differently than people were expecting. I'm certain the people, the money changers and everything that were at the temple, when he came and he started kicking tables over, realized that he was addressing things in a different way. But he never chose avoidance. The reality is that there is a massive identity crisis in society today, and particularly with sexual identity, and we are sometimes scared to death to even to approach the thirsty soul at the well. Too many people struggling with the big questions of life feel like the church, as they understand it, is unapproachable, judgmental, and out of touch. They would be as shocked as a Samaritan woman if we just said, Hello, can I buy you a coffee? How are you doing? How can you really understand the deep hurts of people if you don't ask the simple question, How are you doing? And mean it. We often say those things, you know, how you doing? And when somebody stops and gives you the full, we're like, oh, I didn't expect that. Well, why didn't you expect it? You asked them how they were doing. The church cannot choose avoidance. It is, a, it is counterintuitive to the gospel. It is counterintuitive to the guidance from the head of this body. We have to address the needs of society as we are directed by him. So how can we really show society the true worth of the family of God? We also have to inform society. The second part of this passage, verses 11 to 15, says this. It says, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. He's at a well. He came to the well. He didn't have anything to draw water. He says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She probably thought that she trumped him right there. I got you now. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hallelujah. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. The church's power comes from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Uh, I mean, we, we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I believe it with all my heart. But, uh, but 
you know, and we believe that baptism of the Holy Spirit comes with the initial evidence of speaking in other tongues. But, uh, but I'm telling you, what I'm interested in when the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the empowering for the service in the kingdom of God. I believe that it changes, changes things. When I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, God put such a big spotlight on my call that it scared the living daylights out of me. Everything became so much more real to me. I wish I had a better reaction at the time to that, but that's another story for another day. The church's power comes from the Holy Spirit. God brings insight, discernment, direction, and wisdom that physical or mental efforts cannot provide. Jesus draws the Samaritan woman's attention to her spiritual need, not her physical need. One of the real reasons we are often afraid to approach society and the complex issues of our day is because we get caught looking at the physical issues instead of understanding the spiritual need. If the church is not informing society on a spiritual level, then what we are bringing to the conversation, what are we bringing to the conversation that distinguishes us as a church? If the church is not informing society on a spiritual level, then what are we bringing to the conversation that distinguishes us as a church? I remember I had a strange wedding request one time. I was out pastoring in a church in Northern Ontario, in Sturgeon Falls, and I was actually the only one in the church at the time, and I ended up answering the phone in the foyer when it rang, and it was this gentleman from Ottawa, and I still can't, he didn't give me his name, I ended up on the phone with him for two hours and a half, standing in the foyer, ended up sitting on the floor, because I realized that God was doing something in this conversation, but he asked if I, he was coming to Sturgeon Falls, asked if I could marry them, and I told him, well, this is what I would expect, and he's like, oh, 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 he says, I don't want a religious wedding, I'm like, like, I'm like, bro, you called the wrong guy, man. <laughs> he's like, what? And he's starting to get mad. He's like, what do you mean? You can't do it because I, I said, if you want money, you go to the bank, right? If you want groceries, you go to the grocery store. Why would you come to a church and ask me not to express God in your union? And he's like, oh, never thought of it like that. Right? We ended up having a conversation when I left, the man was in tears. And I've never spoke to him again, and I had to leave him with God. But I just believe that God did something in his heart. I asked him on the phone. He wasn't quite ready to accept Christ, but I feel like there were seeds planted. There was a little bit of water thrown on, and I hope somebody found him. And I hope that God has continued to pursue him. But this is the way it is sometimes, you know. Like, what distinguishes us as a church? If we're not dealing with the spiritual issues of life, God still speaks to and through people today, through prophecy, for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, right? He also uses words of knowledge, and other times love is communicated to a person's spirit through a simple question like, will you give me a drink? Sometimes we want the word of knowledge. Sometimes we're, we go to run to the altar, or maybe somebody will prof, prophesy to me. But when somebody comes to you with the word of God in their hand, and, and you ask them a question, and you give them an answer from the word of God, well, I'll pray about that a little more. Whew. Is this not the word of God? You know, isn't this the first place we should look for the answers? I'm not saying you don't need a word of knowledge or that God hasn't got prophecy for you, but boy, man, if you're not looking to the word first, this is the first place I go. 
And the second place is on my knees or writing in my journal and having a conversation because I feel God saying, you know, will you give me a drink? But if we are in relationship with the Father and we ask him to superintend our conversations, our encounters, then he will give us the words to say. And he will also tell us when to be quiet and listen. That's one we need to pay attention to a little bit more, maybe. Luke 12, 11 to 12 says this, when you are brought before synagogues, you know, talking about those who have been sent out, it says, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And I'll say it again, that if you come like a lamb, he'll defend you like a lion. Whether through prophecy, word of knowledge, biblical wisdom brought to memory, we will be informing society through the power of the Holy Spirit, through our interactions. Whoever drinks of this water I give them will never thirst. This is what he said. This is what he was offering this this woman. He says Jesus was offering her a peace she had never known, a new identity, a hope, a joy, love everlasting. He was offering her everlasting life when he was offering her this water that would never make her thirst again. He didn't look past her physical life and circumstances. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He addresses the most important issue first. If I start going too long here, just throw something at me. I didn't bring a timer or anything, so I'm just I'm freewheeling it here now. So just pace with me, okay? He didn't look past her physical life and circumstances, but he addresses the most important issue first. The church has a responsibility to inform society on spiritual issues of life. But sometimes those opportunities only come when we are willing to begin a simple conversation or meet a simple need with genuine empathy led by the Holy Spirit? How can we really show society the true worth of the family of God? We also have to confront society. That seems like a bold word, but I'm going to stick with it. Confront society. Beginning of verse 16, he says, He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true, she said. Do you know that we can believe a truth with our whole heart and still be afraid to communicate it in a loving way? We've got to realize that there's still a battle going on, right? When Judas sat at the table and Jesus said that the person who puts his hand in the, in, in the bread basket with me, this is the one, you know, we, we were hard on Judas, but there was a battle. It says also that the spirit, that the, the devil came in him at that point. There was a battle raging. That battle is still raging. He's defeated, but the battle's still going on. He's still trying to get your attention. We can believe a truth in our heart wholeheartedly and still be afraid to communicate in a loving way. We are worried about how society will respond. This is what it boils down to. I have had people ask me some pretty tough questions over the years, and I have found myself praying in moments and speaking truth in love and being amazed at how responsive people are to my honesty. Carrie Ann and I have had interactions, and we're like, whew. 
I can't believe how God stepped in and did something amazing. People have asked us how we feel about homosexuality and what we believe, and, and, and we spoke the truth in love. And, and much to your surprise, when you speak truth in love, people tend to accept it. Now, they didn't be, this person that we were to, um, referring to didn't become part of our church, but they become a good friend. They begin to donate things to the church, and we saw this relationship begin to build. And, and every now and again, I still pray for, for him. But we were willing to have a conversation, and my wife in particular was courageous enough to have the conversation. I'm also amazed at how the Spirit helps us communicate in personal, relevant, loving ways. When we circle around issues or give weak answers because we are afraid to offend, all we do is give the appearance that we do not believe what we confess. When we deal with the big questions about suffering, origins, sexual identity, sin, in a glancing way, we display a lack of confidence in the head of this church. We display a lack of confidence in the influential power of the Holy Spirit. Not one of you who've accepted Christ came because someone spoke to you. You came because the Spirit spoke to you. I do not see Jesus holding back in this account. I don't see it at all. I don't see him holding back. He tells her to go get her husband when he knows she doesn't have one. He flat out calls her out and her sort, uh, on her sordid sexual history. I mean, five husbands and an existing non-married relationship. She was the Elizabeth Taylor of Samaritans. He didn't do it to embarrass her. But if he didn't communicate truth to her, she would never understand her spiritual need. He didn't. Her identity was wrapped up in her relationships. And it was obvious she still hadn't settled on who she was. She was searching. I've tried to give this advice to people. They've been in multiple relations. And I said, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know how important you are in Christ? Because you should not be entering in a relationship until you understand how important you are to the bridegroom. You got to be comfortable with who you are in Christ. That's the gift you give to your significant other. She didn't have a clue. Her identity was wrapped up in in her relationships. Isn't it interesting after he confronts her that she points it back to their differences, you know, maybe a little bit uncomfortable. She points it back. I don't, kind of saying, I still don't think that you should be talking to me. She says in verse 21 to 26, woman, Jesus replied, believe me. Actually, let me go back to verse 19 for she said, see what she says. She says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She draws it back to the differences. She draws it back to why you probably shouldn't be talking to me. But Jesus' response is amazing. Society will double down on all the reasons we shouldn't converse. 
We need to be the ones breaking these barriers down. She reverts back to the physical separation. She still doesn't quite get it. But Jesus continues to confront this in verses 21 to 26. He says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father. When you will worship the Father, those words must have been so powerful to her. You, a Samaritan woman, looked down upon you, came in the middle of the day because you didn't feel welcomed in the morning. You will be able to worship the Father. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes to the Jews. Yet a time is coming, hallelujah, and has now come, hallelujah. when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and those worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is just not a simple statement. This is the tetragrammaton. This is him saying, I am Yahweh. He's going back to the conversation, you know, with the burning bush where, where God identified himself as the I am. This is, this is it right here. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. The fact that Jesus is even talking or taking the time to talk to this Samaritan woman who was trying to find meaning through her six different physical relationships is telling us that the church is called to reach into society no matter what it looks like with God's love. Excuse me. Church has the answers through God's word and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to society's concerns. I believe it with all my heart. So how can we show society the true worth of the family of God? We gotta show them Jesus. We gotta show them that he's the head of my life, the head of our life. He is the head of this body. We gotta show him Jesus. We got to show them that we listen to the head, that my fingers move because the head has told me to move. My feet go where I go because the head has told us where to go. He is the hope. We got to show them, Jesus, don't be afraid to address society. Start with a simple conversation. Don't get deterred by racial, social, cultural, gender, moral barriers. They're man made barriers. There's societal man-made barriers. Don't, don't let the Spirit of God who's speaking to you, don't say no to him when he tells you to cross those barriers. Don't forget that you have the truth that they need. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can inform their situations. Sometimes God will do that through word of knowledge. Sometimes you'll speak things into your life. I've had it happen. When Carrie Ann and I, we had a long journey, 10 years trying to get pregnant. But in that 10 years, we, we, we met our daughter, who was only a month old. God knew a life needed to be rescued. And I began to understand why we had to wait the 10 years. But in that time, we got prayed for so many times. But there was one time we were at a camp, campground. Who believes in campground moments? Amen. And this man came over, never didn't meet us for the first time, and spoke into our life and talked about how God was going to provide us with a child. Later that year, 
finalize the adoption later the next year, finalize the adoption of my daughter. Gave her the second name, Joy, because that's what she did. She brought joy back into our life. And later that year, found out we were pregnant with our son, Oliver. Sometimes God speaks word of knowledge, speaks these things in a moment. It doesn't always happen that way, but we can help by also meeting their physical needs, by being compassionate and empathetic, by listening, opening our ears. And the real gift we have is a spiritual truth that we can offer. And the Holy Spirit's going to do the heavy lifting in those moments. You've got to remember that. Lastly, don't be afraid to confront spiritual issues that God brings to your attention. This is the true power of God's family. To help people realize their need of God. That he has the answer to their brokenness. He has the answer to why we look for love and fulfillment in all the wrong places. He welcomes those who are searching into this great family, into his beloved, into his church. The church is the hope of the world. And Christ shows us how to communicate this truth through his conversation with this social outcast, with this sinner. So let's just look at this account, Leaves, and I want to leave you with these words, and we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to talk about how Jesus saved us from our sins. Amen? Verse 28 says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This is what an encounter with the Holy Spirit does. It makes people go and tell other people about the encounter. And then you go down to 3942, you know, quite a bit later it says, Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because the woman's, of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. The people of Nazareth, where he grew up, didn't even want him to stay. But it did. Go back and look at the scripture. He still stuck around. Urged him to stay two days. And because of his words, many became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. We have the power to simply speak, to dress. We have the power through the power of the Holy Spirit to inform society and to confront the things that the Spirit brings to our attention. We have the power to influence to a point where then our realm of influence will go and say, you got to come listen to this dude. you got to come listen to this woman. you got to come listen to even this child. You know that children lead people to Jesus? thankful for that Father I just want to just pray and ask your Holy Spirit to just seal this word in our heart today Lord I'm so grateful to be part of this body Lord Jesus I think of all that you did in our life at Willowdale PC and I'm so thankful for that but that's still part that's part of your body Lord, and I'm so excited about what you're going to do in this part of your body, in this part of your kingdom, Lord Jesus. This city needs Jesus. 
This neighborhood needs Jesus. They need to understand that the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is here to listen to their issues, to understand and to allow them to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has the answers they need. Father, I pray that you seal this word in our hearts, that it would challenge us all this week, that we would come back next week with testimonies, <laughs> that maybe even somebody would show up here next week and say, you know what, so-and-so spoke to me about you, but now that I'm here, I'm amongst the believers, I sense his presence, Lord, I, know, I, I know you personally now myself. That's it. That's the mission. Lord, and we accept it today in the name of Jesus. Father, we love you. We honor you. We glorify you. Lord, again, seal this word in our heart today. Challenge us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's just worship him as we prepare to close this morning.